I urge you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 may well be the most controversial chapter in the Bible. In order to prepare you for my introduction, uh, let's read the first six verses. I intend to preach from the entire chapter. Begin with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. There are uh, three basic principles that I have urged you to keep in mind as we study the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is admittedly a difficult book. And uh, the first principle that I have asked you to keep in mind, I must remind you of today, is that we ought to seek to understand the simple before we approach the complicated. And so, in, in the case today, if there is simple language in the rest of Scripture about what is going to happen at the end of time, then let that simple language inform the way that we understand Revelation 20, and let it not be the other way around. Let it not be that we say, well, here's, here's something in Revelation chapter 20, and we need to make the rest of the Bible fit with it. When I say that, I'm not creating a straw man that is, in fact, a, a very prominent uh, biblical uh, hermeneutic a method of interpreting the Bible is to start with Revelation 20 and then read the rest of the Bible retroactively to make it fit with Revelation 20. Don't do that. Start with the plain, make your way to the difficult. The second thing is, uh, start with the literal and then move to the figurative. So start with uh, the literal plain statements that are made, in this case, about the end of time. And then let us seek to interpret the figurative, which this, I maintain, is figurative language, Maintain, uh, understand the figurative in light, of the, in, in light of the literal. The third principle is start with what is generally taught in the Bible about the end of time <clears throat> and then move to the specifics. So those three rules, you, you go from the easy to the difficult, you go from uh, the literal to the figurative, and you go from the general to the specific. So I'll, I'll make 
make reference to that later on and employ those principles later on. Also, by way of introduction, uh, this is the only place in the Bible where the millennium, I put that in air quotes, it's the only place in the Bible where the millennium is mentioned. So there are other places in the Bible where the, the phrase a thousand years is mentioned, and I think that that will help us to understand what is meant by the thousand years that is mentioned here. Of course, it doesn't use the word millennium uh, here. Millennium is, uh, uh, I think, a Latin word. The Greek word is uh, like kili, kilioi, and so some people are called kiliists, but um, I never hear anyone identify themselves as kiliists anymore. That's mostly a theological term that you read in books, but it's based on the Greek word that is used here for a thousand years. But this is the only place in the Bible where if, if there is going to be a, a segment of time that lasts for a thousand years at the end of time, this is the only place in the Bible where it appears. So keep that in mind. Now, the, uh, the question that any interpreter, I the preacher, have to uh, answer in preaching from Revelation 20 is the question, is this a literal thousand years or is it a figurative use of a thousand years, that it just means a really long time? And uh, those... Uh, there are, there are four basic interpretations of Revelation chapter 20, but they can be divided into two categories. Now, I've already told you months ago that there are four approaches to the book of Revelation. And the four approaches to the book of Revelation are futurist, everything's going to happen in the future, preterist, which means that everything in chapters 1 through 19 has mostly happened in the past, there's idealist, which means that the things that uh, hap- are described in the book of Revelation are spiritual experiences that occur again and again throughout history. And then there's, fourthly, the historicist position, which says that the things that are described in the book of Revelation have uh, literal parallels in history. Uh, so I've taken the preterist approach that I think that most of what is in the book of Revelation was fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and, and I have given you many reasons for why I think that to be the case. But you can be one of those uh, four, an idealist, a futurist, and so on. You can be one of those and have liberty on which view you take towards, towards the millennium. Uh, So here are the four views towards the millennium that can be divided into two categories. The first category is that the thousand years are literal, and the second category is that the thousand years are figurative or metaphorical. So the the two interpreters that fall into the literalist camp, one of them is very old and one of them is fairly recent in, in terms of church history. The old view is called historic premillennialism. And historic premillennialists believe that most of what is written in chapters 1 through 19 refers in some way to things that have, that have happened, have been happening, 
or will happen up until the end, but there but then Jesus is going to come back and that's going to commence the thousand years. It's going to be a literal thousand year reign of Christ. And then at the end of that will come the end of time. Those are historic premillennialists. You can find them uh, all the way back as about as far as church history goes. Now the second category of premillennialists is fairly recent, only about 200 years old, which is not very old. And this second view is dispensational premillennialism, and that is almost certainly the view to which you have been exposed. It is the, the view that is dominant in America. It is the view that informed the Left Behind series. And uh, so in that view, uh, there's going to be a secret, secret rapture before the tribulation occurs. Revelation up to chapter 19 describes seven years of tribulation. During that time, there will be an antichrist that is revealed, but the church is going to be removed from that. The church is going to be removed. It's a pre-tribulation rapture. And then at the end of that seven years, Jesus is going to come back and establish a literal thousand-year reign. The Jews will figure very prominently in this. This is one of the salient features of dispensationalism is that there are two peoples of God. There are the the physical Jews, and then there are, <clears throat> there's the church. <clears throat> and <clears throat> many, if not most, dispensationalists believe that when Jesus comes back for that thousand years, the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and there will be a revival of animal sacrifices. Uh, and uh, that comes as a result of starting with Revelation 20 and then reading the rest of the Bible in view of it. So when Ezekiel describes what's going to happen in the in the, the new temple, he talks about animal sacrifices. And so dispensationalists consistently say, well, then there will be animal sacrifices in the millennium. Uh, then during the millennium, uh, people will live to be very, very old. There will be lost people on the earth, but it will be resurrected saints and people who get saved during the millennium living at the same time on earth for a thousand years on an earth that is ruled over by Jesus Christ from Jerusalem. And then at the end of that thousand years, Satan is going to uh, get together his forces, and that's when the battle of Armageddon will occur. Uh, Jesus will destroy Satan and his forces, and then commences the new heaven and the new earth. And so in, uh, in dispensationalism, there's one, two, three resurrections. There are at least two judgments. There is a, the judgment seat of Christ, and then there's the great white throne judgment that occurs at the end of time. Now, those are both in the literalist camp. So there are literalists who believe that it's going to be a, a literal thousand years. In the camp of figurate, people who think that this is a figurative, I'm one of them. I think that this is a figurative number. I don't think that there is going to be a literal thousand-year reign in the future in the way that, it's, uh, way that it's described by the premillennialists. Instead, I think that this is figurative. One of the reasons that I do that, one of the reasons that I've adopted that opinion is because the way that the word thousand is used at other places in the Scripture. It's used similar to the way that we might say, wow, there are a bazillion stars in the sky. It's just a, you know, nobody knows how many a bazillion is, but it's a whole lot. I think that's the way that the word thousand is used throughout most of Scripture. So, for example, the Lord says 
concerning Israel, one of you will put a thousand to flight, and five of you will put ten thousand to flight. Not a thousand and one? Not, not a thousand and ten? No, the idea is you're going to have disproportionate power over your enemies. There'll be a lot of them, a few of you, but because God is with you, then, then one of you can put a thousand to flight. Or the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Not a thousand and one? Not 995? Literally a thousand hills? Who owns the rest of the cows? Uh, so it's, it's figurative. Uh, a thousand years in the sight of the Lord are like a day that is past. Is there, are we going to figure out a 24-hour correlation and divide up the thousand years? No, it's just like God is not, God is not measured by time. And uh, so I think that the word thousand is used in a figurative way throughout Scripture. Now, among those of us who hold to the idea that the, the thousand years is a figurative number, there are two, there are two camps. There are people who say that the millennium is going on right now. You may say, well, that is just crazy. Let me exp- I'll try to explain to you why that's not crazy. So there are people who believe that the millennium is going on right now and that when Jesus comes back, that's going to be the end of time. There's not going to be two or three judgments. There's not going to be two or three resurrections. Boom, at the end, Jesus comes back. That is the way that the end of the world is consistently described throughout the Scripture. Consistently throughout the Scripture, and uh, I I read a commentary that lists 16 New Testament passages of Scripture that describe the history of the world in two ages. There is this age, and there is the age to come. This age and the age to come. And what separates this age from the age to come is the return of Jesus. So this age will come to an end when Jesus comes back. So there's that. There's this age and the age to come. Then also there is the way that the Bible describes the resurrection of the dead. Consistently describes it as taking place at the last day. So not the antepenultimate last day, not not a thousand and seven years before are some people going to be raptured and raised, not seven years later, but one day then the, the dead, small and great, are going to be raised and stand before the Lord. So people who believe that the millennium is going on right now are called ah-millennialists. <clears throat> ah-millennialists say there's not going to be a literal millennium. Instead, it's It is a time going on right now when Satan has been bound. Now, within the group that identifies as interpreting the thousand years as figurative, there is also post-millennialists. And some post-millennialists are essentially uh, all millennialists. They believe that the millennium is going on right now and that things are going to get, things have been getting better and things are going to get better and better until Jesus comes back to a renewed, renewed earth. And uh, so some of you may say, wow, things are getting better and better. Post-millennials would point to things like the quality of life that we enjoy, the quality of medical care, 
the sort of things that are possible now that were not possible even 50 years ago, not to mention 500 years ago, they would say all of this is, is evidence that, that the world in general, under the influence of Christianity, is getting better and better. So those post-millennialists are very much like all millennialists, say that the millennium is going on now, only the post-millennialists are very optimistic about the success of the gospel and that it is going to conquer the world and Christ is going to return to a conquered world. There are other post-millennialists who believe that there will be a specific time when the world is obviously under the dominion of Christ. It will, it will probably be longer than a thousand years, but it will be a future time. At the end of that future time, then I think everybody believes that Satan is going to be released for a little while. Now, that's a pretty long introduction, but important. And, uh, and uh, I think that you can belong to any one of those four interpretive camps and still be an Orthodox Christian. Yeah, so the people who believe that the thousand years is figurative, like, like I do, I hope that I've been with you long enough that you know that I'm not a liberal and I'm not a kook. You may be worried about some of the stuff that I do, but you know that when it comes to the Bible, I'm not a liberal and I'm not a kook. And uh, so if we disagree on this, you know, we're going to go back there and eat chicken and turkey and, and just have a good time together. <laughs> so... Uh, But I do have to take an interpretive position, and so here we go. So the first section of this talks about Satan being bound. I already read it, but let's take a look at it again. The binding of Satan is the first point of this text in this sermon. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. We don't know who the angel is. It could be Michael. Back in chapter 12, we read how that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and threw him out of heaven. Uh, It might be Michael. We don't know. Some people think that it's the Lord Jesus. But he comes down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So no doubt about who we're talking about here. It is the devil. And bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him. And what's, what's the upshot of it? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, one of our scripture readings uh, earlier in the service was when Jesus says, uh, if someone wants to rob a strong man's house, then he must first of all bind the strong man. And then he can take the goods out of the strong man's house. And in this story, Satan is the strong man. So remember that Jesus uh, was saying, I mean, the the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus says, well, that doesn't make sense. A house divided against itself will not stand. Instead, here's what's happening. I am binding the strong man and I am releasing people who have been in his house. And, um, and then on the evening of his crucifixion, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, now is the prince of this world driven out. And so 
I believe that what this is talking about is that the, the power that Satan had over the world at large was vastly curtailed with, with the ministry and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That the power of Satan was restrained. So you might say, how could Satan possibly be bound with all of the, the wickedness that is going on? Well, I allow, I, I'm allowing for the possibility that Satan may have been recently released. But that may not be the case. But it sure does seem like things are getting awfully crazy awfully fast. And it may be that Satan has been released. But what's the evidence that Satan has been bound since the ministry of Jesus? Well, for one thing, here I sit, a person whose ancestry is from Great Britain, talking to a bunch of mostly, well, all Gentiles. You know, as far as what we know from reading the Old Testament, throughout the years prior to Pentecost, you couldn't have found this many Gentiles, Christians, in the whole world. Of course, they wouldn't have been called Christians, but worshipers of the true God. In the Bible, you can almost count on one hand. I think you can count on one hand the number of non-Jews in the Old Covenant who were part of spiritual Israel. But with the coming of Christ and his ministry and the preaching, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, then what had been a, a tiny trickle of Jews dripping into the kingdom of God became a mighty gushing waterfall of people from all nations coming into the kingdom of God. And so how did that happen? Well, the, the, the strong man has been bound all of these years, and I hope that he's still bound. But the strong man has been bound. Uh, Postmillennialists would take the same position, and they would say that... Uh, the fact that things have gotten really crazy in the last few years is just a minor setback. And we may even be part of the early church. It may be that the history of Christianity will extend into the tens of thousands of years before Jesus comes back. But anyway, both postmillennialists and amillennialists believe that Satan, uh, that his, his power has been greatly curtailed. And that that explains why people from, uh, from all around the world are coming into the kingdom of God. At the, end of, at the end of this period, Satan is going to be released and he will deceive the nations again for a little while. So that's a quick summary of Satan being bound. Now beginning in verse 4, we see saints raised and reigning. Saints raised and reigning. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, it's not my purpose to to criticize and critique the views that I do not hold. But when I was a dispensational premillennialist myself, this, this passage of Scripture bothered me. Because I knew that the dispensational teaching was that all of the, <clears throat> the saints in Christ are going to be raised at the time of the rapture, and the people on earth are going to be raptured. And uh, so the Christians are going to come out of the graveyards. And, but then the teaching of dispensationalism is that all saints are going to reign on the earth with Christ for a thousand years. But that's not what this passage says. This passage says that it's those who had been beheaded for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. I don't know anybody who got beheaded. And then also it says those who did not receive the mark of the beast or worship its image. And that also, from my perspective, was something that was going to happen in the future. And that was after the church had already been raptured. And so looks to me like there are just going to be a very few Christians living on the millennium if it is a future millennium the way that dispensationalists teach. Well, then I suppose that what, what they would say is, well, this is not all of the people, but this is just some of the people. But at that point, you have started coming my direction. At that point, you have started saying this is a figurative expression, which is what I think it means. Of course, I do believe that those who have been beheaded for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus are going to be reigning with Christ throughout the millennium. And I believe that those who, during the first century, refused to submit to Nero and the Roman government, which is the beast, that they did not worship the image of the beast, they did not cooperate with the corrupt priestly system that characterized Judaism in the first century, they will be reigning with Christ. But I also believe that all departed saints have been reigning with Christ, and when a Christian person dies, he becomes part of this number that is reigning with Christ. Because they have partaken of the first resurrection. Now I've already told you that throughout the rest of the Bible. The indication is there are not going to be two or three resurrections at the end of time. There's going to be one resurrection at the end of time. And so if we have a resurrection that takes place before that. Or something that is described as a resurrection then it must be a figurative or a poetic way of describing a spiritual reality. And I'm going to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 to make the case that is exactly what we have in the plain teaching of Scripture. That those who have been born again have already been raised from the dead and are seated with Christ on high. So here in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read several verses here, all the way into chapter 2, but notice, notice how this is laid out in a literal, that is non-figurative, simple, not complicated description of the way things are and the way things will be. Verse 15. Ephesians 1.15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now see, this is the power that is at work in us too, verse 19. It's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There are the two ages again. We've got this age and the age to come. And Paul says saints are reigning now in this age, and they will reign with Christ in the age to come. And then notice verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Well, that's an interesting way of putting that. So Jesus, who is the head of all things, is connected to his body, the church, and the church then partakes in what the head is doing. Gave him as head over all things. He gives Jesus, who's head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's continue into chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived and once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And how is this condition described? You were dead. Now what happens to saved people who were dead? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He resurrected us. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so here in this plain statement from Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, I think that we have described plainly what is described poetically in Revelation chapter 20. When, when Christians die, they go to be with Christ. And they are in a position of reigning with Christ. We are too. You've already been raised from the dead. You have already been a partaker in the first resurrection. And over you, if you're a resurrected person who is now a Christian, the second death has no power. Now, at the end of the time, at the end of time, there's going to be a resurrection of, uh, of uh, Christians' bodies, going to be a resurrection of lost people's bodies. Lost people are also alive right now, but they're not in heaven reigning with Christ. They are in hell suffering for their sins. 
but the rest of the dead will not come to life until the thousand years are ended. And so I think that this is talking about a reign, a resurrection, and a reigning of Christians that is going on right now and will continue into the next age. Now, in the book of Revelation, we have seen that there are four main enemies. There is Satan. There is the beast that Satan raised up. There is the beast prophet, sometimes called the image of the beast. And then there is the great prostitute. And now in the closing of the book of Revelation, we see all four of those dealt with. The the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. The prostitute is judged. And now we see the judgment of Satan. But first of all, he is released for a little while. So look with me at verse 7 now. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So at the, at the, end, of, uh, at the end of time, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And you might say, well, why, why is God going to release Satan at the end of time? And I suppose that the answer to that is similar to the, quest, the answer to the question, why did God allow there to be a Satan in the first place at all? And I think the answer to both questions is that God uses Satan to accomplish his purposes and ultimately to bring, to bring glory to himself. In contrast to the work of Satan, it becomes obvious how good God is and how salvation is entirely by grace. And so uh, I think that's why Satan will be released at the, at the end of time. Uh, it will be, a, again, a demonstration of God's power, be a demonstration of God's grace. And he's going to come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Who, who are Gog and Magog? I'm tempted to use the singular verb, who is Gog and Magog, because I think that they go together like peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So uh, Gog and Magog, you can read about Gog and Magog in, in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. We don't exactly know who Gog and Magog were, but they were enemies that were going to attack Israel from the north. Israel's enemies almost always came from the north. And Gog is the ruler of Magog. Gog is... So Gog referred to a person, Magog referred to the land, Magog may even mean the land of Gog. And uh, so, but from the, from the Old Testament and from biblical scholarship, we do not know who Gog and Magog were. They're just enemies that rep, I think became representative of enemies against God's people. So in the same way that we say, you know, uh, somebody met his Waterloo, I think the Bible says that's like the, the battle of Armageddon. In the same way that we say we have been, we have been invaded from horde, by hordes from the north or the Goths are upon us. We don't really expect Goths to come upon us. We're just saying we have had, we have had some unusual people come into our ranks. And uh, 
So I think that's the way Gog and Magog is used here. Not specifically from a specific geographic region, but rather the enemies of God. They come from the four corners of the earth, and there are so many of them that they're like the sand of the sea. But they're dealt with very quickly, and I think that this is the end of time. That what, is, what we have here is that they, they make a, an attack against God's people. So verse 9 says, They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The beloved city is not the old Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so that's, that's the end of the enemies of God's people as represented in the book of Revelation. They have all four been dealt with. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Um, for a plain scripture reading on this, let's look in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. So after this big army comes up against the people of God, then fire comes down from heaven and consumes the enemies. And in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, let's read, begin reading with verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, here we go, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord from the, and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his, on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was to believe, was believed. And so, simple statement of Second Thessalonians, at the end of time, there's going to come a day when Jesus Christ is going to destroy all of his enemies with fire. And then look in 2 Peter chapter 3. And we see something similar here. 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll start with verse 8. But the signal verse is verse 10. 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And let me just point out to you that that's the sort of language that is used throughout the scripture, the day of the Lord. It seems to be fast, quick, punctiliar. Sometimes it's described as the last hour. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So one day Jesus is going to come back. I think that's what's described in uh, when Satan and his foes are destroyed by fire. We read about in Revelation chapter 20.
And then the chapter concludes with the judgment that God judges. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there are... uh, apparently two books. The one book is the book of life. And if your name is in the book of life, then you are good. You are going to be, I mean that your future is bright. You're going to go to heaven and be there forever. If your name is not in the book of life, then the works that you have done will demonstrate that you deserve to be punished in hell. And uh, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As I was thinking about uh, this, I was imagining various characters who are called up to the bar of God on the great, great day of judgment. And I think about Phil, Phil the Pharisee who comes up, thinks he's going to have a great day of it. Boy, if anybody gets in, I will. And the books are opened and the things that he has done are, are mentioned and he just sticks his chest out a little bit further with every everything that is mentioned. And then the judge sitting on the throne, which I believe to be the Lord Jesus Christ, says, but I do have one question to ask uh, about him. Did he love me? And suddenly Phil's facial expression changes. What? Of course I didn't love him. I thought he was an imposter. I thought that I'm one of the people who helped to get him crucified. But Jesus is on the throne Did he love me? Did he love my people? And I've got one other question. Is his name written in the book of life? No, sir, it's not. Depart from me, you cursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then I imagine a little woman that I actually knew. Poor. She had three kids. Not sure how they lived. They were poor. But she came to our church, and uh, I remember my parents saying concerning this woman, I'm not going to use her real name, if Dolores can tithe, anybody can tithe. Because here she comes with just her little meager income from who knows where, but yet she walks in the church and she faithfully gives out of her little income. I can imagine Dolores coming up to the bar and she thinks, oh, I'm, I'm done for. I have, I've lived such a miserable, bad life. And, and, uh, and the Lord says, let's see about uh, what Dolores has done. What are her works? Well, sir, she, uh, she tried to raise those kids as best she could. She tried to raise them in church. And, and the king on the throne says, what, what's that in her hand? Well, sir, it's It's a dollar. She was on her way to church when she died and that dollar's in her hand. 
I know about that. I know that she only made $10 a week, and yet week after week she brought that little dollar. See if her name's in the book of life. They look. Yes, sir, it is. Dolores, well done. Enter into your rest. I think about someone I knew who uh, could barely read. I'll just call him Harold the Halfwit. Harold the Halfwit comes up to the bar of God. And his works are examined. And people are standing and thinking, boy, Harold has not got a chance. But then the books are opened. And things about Harold are revealed from the perspective of God. And then the question, is his name in the book of life? Yes, sir, it's right here. Harold, well done. You only had one talent, but you used it well. You trusted in Christ. With the wits that you had, you trusted in Christ. Come, enter into your rest. And if I had time, then I would go through Sam the seminarian. Wouldn't go well for Sam. Or Molly the mother, who just... Spent her life changing diapers and cleaning house. But her name's in the book of life. And I conclude this very controversial sermon with just a real simple question. Is your name in the book of life? Ultimately, the only people who are going to get to go to heaven are people whose names are in the book of life. And the only people whose names are written in the book of life are people who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus. And over them, the second death has no power. Now, uh, Jim Jim Bob has chosen a very good hymn to conclude with, but... I have already gone about seven minutes longer than I usually do, and so may I have the privilege of leading this hymn. Let's stand and sing great...